Well, it's great to be with you, and uh, let's get in the Word. Open your Bibles to John chapter 6. Last night we talked about um, sin. We looked at a, the letter of James and thought about it most of today. Putting, I, I like to take studies and put them into succinct statements. And when you look at sin, of course, what we talked about last night, the way James presents it in James chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 13, it's in the context of the, the word we translate favoritism, which again is two Greek words put together, uh, which we would translate those two Greek words outward and countenance. So it is a, to show favoritism, is to favor or to be partial to someone based on the outward countenance, the outward appearance. So I like you because you have money, which is the illustration he uses. I like you because you're good looking. I like you because you're funny, that kind of deal. Um, and of course, none of those things are bad, but that's not how God sees you. You're not, your value is not in your outside. God looks at the motive of the heart. So... The value is not on the outside. See, you can show up to church on Sunday physically, but not be there spiritually. And it doesn't count. Because God looks at the motive. He doesn't look at the, the amount. It's the woman that just had the little bit of money that Jesus was just blown away about. See, it's motive. That's what he's after. So when you sin, okay, if you, the way James talks about it, you don't show uh, or you show favoritism, which means you don't see the way he sees. You see on the outside. He sees on the inside. So the, the fundamental of sin is the way he sees is the way I don't see. The way he feels is the way I don't feel. What defines him doesn't define me. We're on two different pages. That's the fundamental of sin, which gives us this principle of sin. Sin, in its basic form, it's simply not living, not functioning by God's design. God designed us to live uh, in a certain way. He created mankind to, to walk in relationship with him. He, he created mankind to be, you know, very specific in how we, how we think, how we walk, how we talk, how we live, how we feel. So anytime someone is operating uh, in sin, they're really malfunctioning as a human being. And so you take any issue today, okay? Lying. God designed us to live in truth, not to invent our own version of the truth. So when you invent the own version of the truth, he is truth. And so when you lie, you're living by a truth that is defined by you and way, the way you see it or the way you want it, not by, not by him. And it, that's the, the fundamental of every aspect of sin. We have issue in our culture with same-sex relationship and homosexuality. God simply did not design two bodies to come together like that. He just didn't. I was uh, with um, a church, uh, excuse me, a, well, it's a camp, church camp, but it was with uh, several leaders of multiple churches, and they brought me in in this, uh, this meeting they had, and we had an issue at the camp, and... And they said, how would you respond to this? Because I was speaking at the camp. And I, you know, I said, you go back to Genesis. God created uh, a man with certain genitalia. He took out of that man 
a, a woman that had different genitalia. And they came together and they were to populate the earth. And God ordained and sanctified that relationship, uh, that covenant relationship that we would come to call marriage. And all throughout the old covenant, 4,000 years during an old covenant, any deviation of that relationship, okay, relations outside of marriage, okay, adultery, homosexuality, whatever, any perversion of that covenant relationship was punishable, sometimes by death. So you come into a new covenant hour, and the disciples are talking with Jesus about divorce, which is a, is a deviation of that covenant relationship. And Jesus points them right back and said, God, what God put together, don't let man mess with. So Jesus validated that covenant relationship. So in the scriptures, okay, that's, again, so if you choose to operate in any form of sexual sin, you choose to operate outside of that covenant relationship, that sin, which means you're operating in a way in which God did not design you to operate. So at the, the bottom line of what, we, what we've been talking about this week is, come on, you can't live in sin, which means you need to function. You need to operate in relationship with him uh, in the way that he's created you to, to, uh, to walk with him. That's, that's, the, that's the fundamental. Now, tonight, what I want to look with you at, and this, <laughs> it always gets a little aggressive, I guess. And we're going to begin in, in John chapter 6. Well, I don't want to use that translation. Hold on here. Got this nifty little doodad that lets me have multiple translations. Um, I really want to begin focusing in in chapter 6. John's gospel is it's really different. It's, it's different than the other three what they call synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you've been around church long enough, you've probably heard people talk about this. Uh, John's gospel begins in the first 18 verses with this uh, statement on... Um, how God created us, okay? His intelligent design of how he created us to walk in relationship with him. Jesus is the perfect example of that. And that's really huge. That's super significant, which means if you want to know what it looks like to be a child of God, Jesus came and demonstrated that. He's, he's what a child of God looks like. He's perfect design. How he overcomes, you and I are supposed to overcome. How he lived, you and I are supposed to live. The resource he had for, for holiness, you and I have. The relationship with the Father that he had, we have. Yes. See, all of that. See, he's the perfect design. And in him is no sin. He's perfect. He operated exactly the way that God communicated or that God created mankind to operate. In fact, Paul calls him the second Adam. If you want to know what the first Adam was like before sin, you look at the second one. Okay, so Jesus is perfect. So John gives us to that, gives us that in, in the first 18 verses. Then you come into the narrative. That's the story of the gospel beginning at verse 19 of chapter 1. And John skips a lot of things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke include. Um, in Luke, for example, you have the birth of Jesus, the genealogy stuff. You've got the childhood of Jesus. You've got the temptation scene. All of that is left out of John's gospel. His gospel picks up in verse 19 of chapter 1 with the calling of his first disciples, which that doesn't happen until chapters 5 and 6 of the gospel of Luke. So 
hey, Luke's been down the road a little bit. So in chapter one, you have all these calling of the first disciples, and then you get into the whole ministry of Jesus. Uh, and really, the first two years of his, of his ministry covers the first six chapters of, God, of John's gospel after, uh, after the calling of his first disciples. Now, that's not just information. That's really important. Because by the time you get to chapter six, uh, you come to this transitional place in Jesus' ministry. And in chapter six of John, you have the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. And scholars tell us, and not just my opinion, scholars tell us that the feeding of the 5,000 miracle is one of the most significant miracles in the ministry of Jesus. And it's one of the most significant, if not the most significant, because it's not only told in all four gospels, which that's not the case with most of his miracles, but it's put in the same place in all four gospels. In every single gospel, it's, it marks a transitional time in the ministry where before that point, he had 5,000 follower disciple men with their families, okay, and women as well, but with their families. And after this point, he has tw- between 12 and 120. Most people would say more than 12 because you get the women disciples that are, that are there, the mayor, all the Mary, you got Marys running around everywhere. But it's, it's a Mary joke. But okay, so there's probably more than 12, but there's not much more than 12. And the crowd that had followed him for two years will be at his uh, trial chanting for his death in less than a year, which is really tragic. In fact, when you come into chapter six, Jesus basically, and it's really, again, the feeding of the 5,000 is really significant because for the first time in his ministry, he confronts this crowd who are big fans. They're following him. They're cheering him. They're, they believe in who he is. They do. They believe in he's the Messiah. But hear this. This is the whole point of what we're going to look at tonight in terms of what John is saying in chapter six. The kind of savior that they wanted is not the kind of savior that he came to be. Here's what I want to tell you. We live in a day where a lot of people talk about Jesus. The enemy has not just tried to extinguish Christianity, which I think is his ultimate goal, but he's created a counterfeit uh, Christianity. In other words, there's a Jesus people worship out there who's not the Jesus of the scriptures. Yeah, there's a Christianity that's not Christianity. Um, and so you have a group of people that are, that are, that are really excited about Jesus and man, they're dedicated to Jesus, but the kind of savior that they want is not the kind of savior he came to be because they're not interested in living the life that he's been, that he's been living. They, they're into a different design. Okay. They're, they're, they're living a sinful life. In fact, he confronts them on this. And by the time you come to chapter six, we'll, we'll go through the beginning of the chapter here in a bit. But by the time you get to chapter six, verse 20, after he explains, he just confronts them on what they believe. Verse 20 says, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, your version of Christianity, that's kind of tough. And then down in verse 66, it says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, Do you want to leave too? That he's left with 12. So it's really significant. So what I want to do really quickly is I want to go back and I want to look at this group because they remind me from time to time of myself. They do. 
I find myself, I've found myself over the years trying to fashion Jesus into my own personal Savior, fashioning Christianity in my own little personal religion, which at times came in conflict with the scriptural definition of, of Christianity. And, and let me give you an example of this. Church on Sunday morning. And, I, and I've seen this. And this, this probably doesn't apply, obviously, to your church, just all those other churches in the world. People come to church once in a while and they're under the delusion that church is about them. Yeah, this is our church. No, it's not. It's his. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, the, the worship is not about you. Well, I don't like the music. Well, so what? It was never, it was, this is not a club. This isn't the Lions Club. Okay? Your tithe is not dues that you pay. They're not. That's, that's God's tithe. I've actually heard people say, well, when stuff doesn't go the way I like it, we hold our tithe. We, 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 we put it, we, that's sin, man. You can do whatever you want to do, but that's not, that's no longer tithe. The church has never been about you. It's always been about him. See, we create worship services for him, not for us. This is not a new idea. Shake your head. Say, yeah, praise the Lord. Come on, that's not what the church is not about you. Well, I don't like this. Well, I don't care. Yeah, it's never been about you, man. It's always about him, which means it's really about them. And this group, man, they get sucked, they get sucked into that. And uh, for instance, let's, let, I'm going to give you three quick examples of, of this group going through that transition. The first time this group in chapter 6 is introduced is after the calling of the 12 disciples. And it's, uh, it begins in chapter 2, verse 12. And probably just for... Posterity. Let's go ahead and look at uh, the first miracle in chapter 2, which is the, the changing of water into wine. Jesus has got his 12 disciples with him, and uh, he goes to this, uh, he crashes this wedding party with him and his 12 buddies. And his mom gets him all caught up in this lack of wine drama. And Jesus tells her, verse 4, dear woman, why do you involve me? Come on, this is, this is your deal. This isn't my time to come. That, this isn't my deal. And you know how moms get. They don't listen. <laughs> and she turns to the servants and says, do whatever this guy tells you. And he does the most bizarre things. I loved how the chosen, if you guys have watched any of that, I loved how it's handled there. Uh, verse 6, Jesus, he doesn't, in fact, she, you're, you're under the pressure of the context that she's gathered. She's got all these servants together because they're just really... I mean, they're really uh, nervous about this wine issue. It would have been a social issue. I mean, the wedding went on for several days at the partying and all that. And, and man, they've, they're just they're in, a, they're in an issue, a family social uh, blunder with not having wine. So if you've got these servants together, they've got everything that you would use to go get new wine, new wine vats, new wine. I don't they had kegs back then. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to get carried away, but whatever they would use to put the, the wine in. And Jesus, look what Jesus does. He totally ignores all of that. And he highlights, verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars. And so you're not confused. 
These aren't jars for wine. They're not jars for drinking at all. They're set aside for the ceremonial washing rites of the Jews. There's, it's, like the, um, it's, it's like the teens coming in the sanctuary and all of a sudden uh, a number of senior adults drop by and they find out that they're swimming in the baptismal. Yeah, that, might be a, that might be an issue at some churches because that's not a swimming pool. Okay, that's, a, that's, that's reserved, you know. You've been in churches where the sanctuary is reserved, that space is reserved for specific things. Okay, that's what's going on here, but it's, it's on a whole nother level. And it says it in the text, verse 6, these stone water jars, they were the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus draws his attention to those, that the servants, and says, listen, fill those with water, which is a daunting task. But it says they fill them to the brim. And then he says, draw some of that out and take it to the master of the banquet. And there's all kinds of things that are left out of the, the passage, out of the scene. When did they become wine and all this kind of stuff. But you're left with this, this statement that John brings you to that this miraculous sign. Well, verse 11, it reads, this is the first of his miraculous signs that he performed in Cana in Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And you're like, that's the strangest miracle. I don't understand it. Well, the focus of the miracle was obviously Jesus could have put that wine in it. He could have told them, fill up empty wine vats with water. He could have said, fill up jars with water. He didn't have to say, fill up the ceremonial washing jars with water. He could have, I mean, he could have changed water into wine where wine was actually supposed to go. Why did he choose ceremonial washing jars? Well, it was a statement. That the old way, the old covenant way of bearing, being ceremonially clean in an old covenant hour was coming to an end. And we were going to be ceremonially clean, not through the washing of water, but through the blood of Jesus. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. Joel talks about it. So this is a fulfillment of that. And by the way, and, and we'll just get this out of the way now. One of the reasons the leaders of Israel want to kill Jesus throughout this book is because he's constantly, his miracles aren't just miracles. In fact, in verse 11, notice it says, this is the first of his miraculous signs. In fact, if you get in the original language, you find that the word miraculous is not even there. We just put it there in English. It says, this is the first of his signs. What, is it, what does he mean by this miracle was a sign? It's a sign that an old way of relating to God is done and a new way has come. So the reason the leaders of Israel want to kill him is he's saying, listen, you know, your job is pretty much done. You're not required anymore. Thank you for your, act Thank you for your service. And there's a whole nother deal that God is bringing about. And so his miracles were literally, and, if, and if you, we, we, all, we all remember, his miracles, every single one of them, come in contrast. They come into the face of that old covenant system. It's shutting down, and there's a whole new deal that's coming. He's the lamb. They don't need the old lamb. And so this really, this news spreads about him. Now, here's what happens. So he comes down in verse 12 of chapter 2, and this is where the crowd... Now. This is where he meets the crowd that will eventually be the chapter 6 crowd that desert him. Okay, um, Most of Jesus' miracle, and you can read about this, my favorite is probably, honestly, Luke chapters 4 through 6 and 7, um, those chapters, because he's going around Galilee. Most of his ministry happened in the north. So when he comes down, and that's where this miracle was in Cana, okay, it's Galilee, it's up north, 
when he comes down to uh, in verse 12 to the to Jerusalem it's to celebrate the Jewish Passover it tells us that in verse 13 all the people are coming throughout Israel down to celebrate this this festival this feast and man they've heard the stories he's been to their towns he's been preaching so man there's all kinds of buzz about him well he comes in and we know from verses 12 through 16 that he cleanses the temple so he walks into the temple and and if you've read matthew mark and luke you'll say well didn't that happen at the end of his ministry why does john put it at the beginning well in my opinion every time he came to the temple he flipped over something i mean he just seriously he tore up the joint every time he came into town so John talks about it in this session. He comes in, he's turning over tables, doing all this stuff. And he's coming against the hypocrisy of the Jewish people. And they had a whole scam. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but they had a whole scam. He's, he, it says in verse, uh, verse 16, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? I've had people come to me and say, don't put your table in the sanctuary. This ain't a market. John chapter 2, verse 16. I'm like, oh, you stop. That's not at all what that verse means. The idea of a market, it was a, the motivation. It was a way to make money. And Jesus, dude, you understand, the, if you go back and actually research what they were doing there in the temple courts, that was all for the purpose of helping people in their worship. For example, um, you had people that were businessmen who didn't have sheep and they didn't have lambs. They didn't have dove. They didn't have the things that you needed for the sacrifices. So the temple was providing that for them, but it turned into a way to make money. And one of the favorite, I heard a guy tell it this way and I thought it was funny and hysterical. Uh, a guy comes down and he's an accountant up North in Galilee. Well, he comes down and, and he, you know, he, he brought his own lamb because it's cheap. You're going to bring one. You buy one down at the temple. You know, it's expensive. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been approved by the leaders of Israel. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's approved. But, hey, he got the discount, the big lots lamb up there in Galilee and uh, Dollar General lamb. And so he comes down and uh, he takes it up and he's offering it. And they get to looking over the lamb. And, oh, lo and behold, down there between its big toe and its little toe, they see a wart. And, you know, hey. It's got a blemish. Can't, can't use that lamb. And the guy's like, oh, I can't use the lamb. What am I going to do with this thing? I can't keep it in the motel. And, uh, you know, this is going to be terrible. And they say, well, I'll tell you what, we'll buy it. We'll buy it off of you. Hey, we understand. We don't want you to lose all your money. But it's blemished. So we're going to have to buy it from an under market value. Okay, because it's, it's blemished. It's used. And uh, it's, oh, hey, absolutely. I'm going to lose a little bit of money, lose 25%. But hey, at least I get some of my money back. And they say, you can go down across uh, the temple and they sell approved lambs over there. Oh, they're the best in town. They're the, I mean, they're the Abercrombie and, I mean, they're Walmart. They're Walmart level. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know you call it. They're, they're next level lambs over there. They're Kroger lambs. They're, they're I mean, they're big time. So, um, he goes over, gets in line and waits for four hours and finally gets up to the front and they bring this lamb up and boy, he gets to looking at it really closely and he's looking at the price and it's, it's above market price. I mean, it's, he, he took 25% less and now he's got to pay 25% more. So it's 50% more. I mean, he's losing money and he buys the lamb and, and he gets to looking at it really close and, and man, it looks, it looks just like the lamb that he sold. He sold them. 
In fact, when he sets it down and calls it by the old lamb's name, it comes to him. And he's like, that, that's my, it's my lamb. It's been healed. It's been healed. They made 50, you understand, there were 250,000 lambs that were sacrificed during the week of Passover. Some say close to 2.5 million. I mean, there's a big gap there. But there's this massive, they made money on all of those. So Jesus shows up and says, listen, this was never about making money. This was about him. And I'm to be honest, when we show up and we complain about worship, well, they didn't sing the song that I like. We're doing the same thing. I'll say amen for you. So that's, come on, that's what it, seriously. That's what, well, they don't sing the songs I like anymore. I don't care. That's never what it's been about. So Jesus cleanses the tip. And ultimately what he's doing is he's standing up. This is so good. He's standing up for the little guy. He's standing up for the common people who had no voice. And he's championing their cause. And he becomes instantly popular. But they're following him. See, Jesus is a celebrity, not because he's a messiah, but because he's championing their cause. Look at it. So you come down and, and there's stuff we'll skip in, the, in this section. And you can go again on my website and we've got all kinds of sermons on this stuff. But if you go down to verse 23, 24, and 25, here's how the people have responded. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, <coughs> many people saw the signs he was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Come on, he knew all men. So you had these people, they're not necessarily bad, but and they're, they're big time fans of Jesus and they really love him, but they don't love him for who he is. They love him for what he can do for them. Yeah. You, you know how many people I've met that just all oh, love Jesus and he's my ticket to heaven? Oh, so he's a stepping stone. To, I, I was, um, this is a true story. I was praying with a guy one time. I was, my dad, this is back in 1999. My dad was, was dying in the, in the hospital and we were there and, and they kept announcing over the hospital floor uh, that there was a minister needed. And uh, so I went, finally I went to the, I pulled myself away, I went to the desk and I said, hey, I'm a minister. And they said, oh yeah, we've got a guy and he needs prayer, he wants to give his life to Jesus, he's on this floor. I said, oh cool, I'll go down. So I go down to the floor, I walk in, and as I'm walking to his room, I get off the elevator, I go to the front desk, they're like, oh, he's down there. And as I'm walking to that room, I can hear him yelling and cussing and screaming. He's, he's fighting with this woman and I can see him as I'm walking up to the room. And a young man's in there. I learned later it was his son. I hear him say, Dad, the preacher's coming. So everything gets real quiet. And the ex-wife, that was his, not his wife, his ex-wife storms out. And I come in and it's this old, gnarly, weathered, I mean, he wasn't an accountant. He was like some type of a, you know, outside worker, tough, you know, just calloused hand, tough guy, you know. Laying in bed, you could tell he was shriveled up. I learned later it was cancer and he was in bad shape, man. And So I come in the room and Man, he was all business. And he goes, you the preacher? I said, yes, sir. He goes, get in here. I said, yes, sir. And I come in and he said, do you know the sinner's prayer? I want to go to heaven. And I said, absolutely, I know it. And, and I just begin to transition into, hey, man, you know, we all probably do things and we've lived ways that we shouldn't have lived, but we're coming to the end of our life and 
or, or any time in our life, we just kind of kind of get right with the Lord. I was just talking with him about it, and he starts waving his hand. He goes, listen, I don't want you preaching. He goes, I want you to tell me the sinner's prayer. I want to go to heaven. And it re- God just revealed to me, this guy didn't want anything to do with Jesus. It was a self-centered, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven and have a great afterlife kind of a deal. And I just stood there shocked. I was terrified. He goes, are you going to leave me in the sinner's prayer or not? I said, yeah, you're still going to go to hell. No, I didn't say that, but I said it in my mind. (laughs) No, but I was terrified, so I just said, repeat after me. Come on, God is not going to be mocked. Well, I said the right thing. Remember we talked about? It's not just the outside, it's inside heart stuff. Come on, he's not. That's this group, man. They're big fans of Jesus. Oh, he's awesome, man. Look what he does. What can he do for me? I, I meet people all the time and say, well, I, well, I don't want to bug him. The only time I pray is when I need something. He's busy. You know how selfish that is? You know? Why do you go to that church? Oh, I really like what's going on there. And boy, they've got this program that really benefits me and my family. And they sing the kind of music that I like. And boy, they don't harp on things. And, I, and it's all, and, you know, so basically church is all about you. <laughs> Every pastor on the face of the planet who's ever heard this are always like, Amen! Yeah, because you have to deal with people like that, man. That's this group. And Jesus says, come on. Hey, I'm, he didn't entrust himself to them. That's what verse 24 says. Well, what does that mean? He didn't, see, in other words, he didn't, they said, we want you to be our Messiah. And Jesus says, I don't want to be your Messiah. In other words, the kind of Messiah you want is not the kind of Messiah I came to be. You want a Jesus, you want a different Jesus than I've come to become. That's the first time he meets him. The second time he meets him, it's the same thing. So he ends up, actually, it's a funny story. If you followed it out, and we don't have time to go through all of this. Again, I've preached through all of this. You can go to our our podcast site off my website. But he leaves Jerusalem, and he ends up cutting through Samaria. And no Jew would ever go through Samaria. And you have to ask yourself, why? He's losing the crowds. He's ditching them. And you'll find out how he does this later. He's always ditching them. He's always hiding from them, slipping away. And he ends up stopping and and intersecting this woman at this well and transforms her life and preaches to the Samaritan crowd. It's wonderful. But he comes out of that scene in verse 43 of chapter 4. This is the second place where he meets this group. It says, after two days, he left for Galilee. This is hysterical. Listen to this. Verse 44, in fact, you'll note in verse 44, at least in my translation, verse 44 is in parentheses. It's not in quotations, it's in parentheses. Anybody else have it like that in their Bibles? Several of you do. You say, well, why is it in parentheses? Because this is not a quote. The grammar, it's not a quote that Jesus says. It's kind of like in the grammar, if you want to know what he was talking about, from the time that he left Samaria until he got to Galilee, this is what he was talking about. And what was he talking about? Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So the whole time he's heading back up to Galilee where all these people are, he's saying, I'm telling you, they're not going to honor me. Now, what's interesting is there's two different Greek words for honor. One is doxa or glory which means to give praise, adoration, thankfulness. Uh, We do that on Sunday morning uh, uh, once a year for Veterans Day. We have all the veterans stand up and we honor them. Okay, very appropriate, it's wonderful. 
And, but that's not this Greek word. Jesus is not saying, you know, well, they're not going to cheer for me. You know, my name probably won't even be in the bulletin. You know, so he's not, he's not complaining about that. The Greek word he uses, not doxa, it's the Greek word temin, which means value. It's a financial term. It's a financial term. So what he's really saying is I'm telling you before we ever get there, they don't know what I'm worth. They don't value me. Yeah, they think I'm a miracle worker, that I'm here to fix all their problems. That's not why I'm here at all. That's not what church is about. And in fact, he comes there and, and, and they all come out and they cheer. Look at this, verse, 25, verse 45. When he arrived, the Galileans welcomed him. The idea of welcome there is they were ecstatic. They'd seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem. They were this group, man. They're like, that's our guy, man. Whoa, he stood up to the leaders of Israel. Man, he's, oh boy, I tell you, I'm, I'm voting for him. Yeah, I'm, well, I tell you, man, he's, he stood up for the little guy. Praise the Lord, he's my party. That's what they're thinking. And they come down and, and what do they do? The whole tone of their life is how can we use him? Oh, he's here. What can he do for us? And Jesus said in verse 48, in response to it, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you'll never believe. You'll never get in unless, unless you use me, unless I'm doing something for you. So again, it's negative. Now you come into chapter six and this is where he confronts them for the final time. And it's the feeding of the 5,000 scene. And let me give you some geography here. If you were to look at this in maps, and there's actually some great places on the internet you can, you can look, people's drawing this out and all that. But it's, it's an area, we know that he's backed up against the Sea of Galilee because there was boats there, and in the text it tells us that. And there's a big hill, if not, it's not even a, a side of a mountain, really. Uh, in fact, I think it says it's a side of a mountain down in verse... Um, yeah, verse 15, he withdrew again to the mountain. So there's like this big, big hill. It's almost like a, a little small mountain. And it's backed up right against the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd has tracked him down because he's always running away from them. And they've wrapped around this mountain. And he's sitting there with this 5,000 crowd and all their families, which most scholars suggest there could be 25, 30,000 people. There's this enormous gathering. And... Uh, Basically, his disciples come and say, hey, tell the people to go away. They're going to starve to death. They don't have any food. I mean, there's 25,000. We can't go to, dude, you can't go to Walmart with 25,000 people. There's not enough food there, you know? And Jesus says, well, you feed them. And they're like, good night. So he ends up doing this phenomenal miracle. Everybody's fed. Look at the response of the people and then how Jesus responds to them. Let me say that again. Listen to the response of the people and how Jesus responds to to them. Verse 14 of chapter 6. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they begin to say, surely this is the prophet. Notice the P in prophet is capitalized. That's a messianic title. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, verse 15, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Well, you say, well, why, did they, why would they have to make him king by force? He didn't want to be their king. So he runs away up the mountain. In fact, if you follow the whole scene out, he tells his disciples to get in boats and flee. Go to Capernaum. I'll catch up with you. He goes and hides up on the top of the mountain, and they don't go and get him because, hey, where's he going to go this time? I mean, we're surrounding the mountain 
from the Sea of Galilee to the Sea of Galilee. And the, I mean, what's he going to do? Walk down in the middle of the night and go down and walk out across the water? <laughs> yes. Okay. That's exactly what he does. And in the middle of the night, he goes down, walks out across the water, gets in the boat with the disciples and goes over to Galilee. So verses 16 down through verse 21 happens and the crowd doesn't realize it. Verse 22, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the shore realized that only one boat had been there and Jesus not got in. They're like, where'd he go? He's like Houdini. So they go up. In fact, it says... um, Verse 24, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and they go to track him down. So he literally, see, what you find for the first two years of Jesus' ministry, you have people that want to use him, but they don't ever come and embrace the real message. That's why Jesus talks to his disciples. He says, many on the Lord's day are going to say, Lord, Lord. But not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, gets in the kingdom of heaven. People that come to church, they're going to say, I preached in your name, I prophesied in your name, I healed in your name. I never knew you. Hey, so you can show up to church and know about Jesus, but come on. It's not just knowing information about him, it's intimacy. Yes. It's knowing him. Yes. Come on, we know this. So they find him on the other crowd, other side of the lake. And for the first time in two years, he just confronts them. And look at this in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Come on, why are you running away? And listen to what he says. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your, your bellies are full. Yeah, come on, you're looking for food. And then he says in verse 27, stop working for food. Come, stop using me. And they say in verse 28, well, what does God want from us? And he says in verse 29, the work of God is this. Get all wrapped up in me. Believe in me. Give your whole life to me. Let, let, your, let my focus be your focus. Let my heart be your heart. And you know what they do? Listen to this. Verse 30. Well, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Hey, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and it is breakfast. And Jesus says, that's it. I'm not doing any more miracles. No, nothing else. The only sign you're going to see is a sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights. That's it. That's all you're doing. And he confronts them. And at the end, by the time you come to the end of this chapter, they say, well, I don't think, I don't think I'm going to vote for this guy after all. Wouldn't it be interesting if we voted in our culture, not for the person that best benefits our pocket, but for the person that best benefits our country? Now, again, obviously, I'm not talking about you guys, but you'd be shocked and startled at the number of self-centered. It just smells. I have people storming out of church. Oh, well, the music is there. Oh, the music. Oh, dup, dup, dup. Man, I wish you'd get saved. <laughs> well, he's on the board. I don't know what the pastor's doing. Seriously, man, get that guy out of leadership. He'll poison the church. Oh, you don't know how much money he gives. Oh, so it's about money. Send them packing, man. Come on, we can't tolerate that. We cannot tolerate that in our body. Because it's not about you. It's not about any of you. It's about them out there. When I moved to Nashville, we structured everything in our service to become salt and light. I've heard that somewhere. I think... I forget where I heard that. Maybe it's a Veggie Tales. But uh, um, we structured everything in our service to be salt and light for our community. Everything. 
What about worship? Yeah, well, it's southern, it's down south. It's country, western, that kind of, I'd rather chew broken glass and listen to that crap. But, but we worship to that. Why? Because they love it. Bunch of inbred hillbillies. Praise the Lord, man. But, but yeah, I don't, I don't, the work, it's not about me. I don't come into the service. And, I, and I, you try to relate this to people. What would you give up? What rights of yours would you give up to get your grandkids and your kids to come into this? What culture change would you have to make? And what would you be willing to do? I've been to churches where, I mean, I was at a church on your district in 1999. Did I talk about this this week? I was in a church, I won't tell you the church, but I was in a church on your district in the 90s. Run probably 270. I think you and I talked about this. That's who I talked to. But they probably run 270. And man, they brought me in because I was the young guy that wore jeans and a t-shirt, you know, and good night. I mean, it's common now, but it was real. I mean, it was, that was risky back then. And, but the older generation liked me because I, I had the message. The younger generation, they, I, they could relate to me. And so the pastor brought me in on at your church here at, on this district. And I remember sitting in the service, I was shocked. They were going through the worship wars and it was just self-centeredness, selfishness just in the atmosphere. And literally during the choruses, the young people would stand up and the older folks would sit down. And during the, during the hymns, the old folks would stand up and the young people would sit down. And the pastor tolerated that. I'd have stood up and shut that thing down right now. I couldn't believe it. And I, I got up and, and was real aggressive. I was like, you should be ashamed of yourself. I don't want my kids to see you fighting like this. And they preached and didn't have me back. Praise the Lord. And they didn't have me back. But I'm telling you the absolute truth until 2009 in my calendar. And I went back. And that church ran 25 and they were, the pastor was bivocational. And your pastor told me that we were talking. He goes, and he said, I know the people that had stirred up, the whole group that had stirred up the controversy, they didn't even stay. And when I went back, there was, they were all 65 and older, which is fine. That the age group's not the problem. And they were coming to me and saying, hey, we, we want to we wanna go contemporary. I said, dude, you had your chance. I mean, come on. Are you going to play drums, Mary Margaret? I mean, come on. Yeah, you, you Maybell, are you going to play electric guitar? I mean, I, come, yeah, there, dude, there's consequences to sin. That's just flat out. And I go to churches that are, that are one decade away from being extinct. Because it's our church and we like it. And it's a bunch of senior dogs. Well, that, yeah, if you, if you, come on, man. We, we can't be that way. We want to reproduce and we want to reach and you're going to have to give up. You're going to have to give up. And I, I, I'm telling you, I've heard people say, well, we, we pay all the bills. We, we're the one who's mowing. We're the one that's fixing up. We're the one paying for everything. So all these young couples, yeah, that's your job. I never get any amens on this sermon. I don't understand it. But seriously, that's your job, man. And you love them and you demonstrate and you put them on the board and you give them leadership and you hold them accountable and you walk with them and you... Because it's, it's her generation. We've got to fill up this church with your generation. You have to. 
If not, you're going to be dead, man. I, I've, I've traveled for 26 years and I, I've seen it. And it is. I, I, I go back into youth ministry now. I've been doing youth ministry. Man, I can't stand teens. They smell. Uh, if you're watching, apologize. No, I love teens, but I'm not a teen. But when I go into the teen service, I don't dictate the worship. I don't. And there's a lot of, they like it dark. I don't. How can they see the, their Bibles? They like, they all come up and stand up front and then sit on the ground. And I mean, good night. You know, seriously, in the clothing. And I, I, I get it. But someone's going to have to take it on the chin in order to reach that group. That's right. And I'm telling you, the churches that grow, the churches that grow, someone in the church, some, a generation is going to have to take it on the chin so that the next generation can know him. And that's your church. And I do. I tell churches all the time. I, you know, I, Bill and I have talked about this in the past. I mean, I've been to probably every church he's been to. I, I'm willing to come, and I'm willing to come back. And I'd love to come back. If these conditions are met, oh, you want more money? I'm not in this for money. If I was in this for money, I wouldn't be here. So, but the reason I, I come, I will come back, is if these steps are implemented and the church begins to focus outward on the community, because I'm not interested in coming back. I'm not an entertainer. <laughs> I'm not an entertainer. I, I am full-fledged, flat out for the kingdom. Amen. And that's what we should be. Whatever it takes yeah. to win that generation, I'm going to do it. And we, we've got to do that. So uh, tomorrow, I can't believe it's already Wednesday. Listen, um, we're gonna, I'm going to be at Spencer this next week, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'd love for you to come. You guys are so nice. They're real stingy and mean over there. So uh, <laughs> No, but I really would love to have you and see your smiling faces. And we're going to look at all new material over there. So if you come, it won't be repeat stuff. But... Um, we we're living in a day and age where, I mean, we're a generation away from. I was watching MSNBC uh, today, and the lady was talking about the greatest deterrent to the whole pandemic that's going on in our country. Is she said those Christians? You realize that's it's just the start. And sitting at home in our armchairs and complaining on Facebook is not going to cut it. Amen. Right. We're going to have to get into that community. That's right. Amen? Amen? I mean, you're going to have to, man. You're going to have to. Father, we love you. And Jesus, I, it's hard, man. I, I think sometimes, Jesus, we look at you as, a, as the little, you know, fluffy Santa Claus God in the sky that just loves us and pats us on the head and wants us to come. And man, you were aggressive. Hey, come on, take up your cross, deny yourself, throw away your life. If you ain't interested in that, don't come to church. Don't come to my church. Rich people would come. Go sell everything you have, man. Come on, anything you're relying on but me and my heart, get rid of it. It ain't allowed, it ain't allowed in my church. Because I'm not here for you. I'm here for a lost world. In the name of Jesus, I'm in. I'm in. I'm into that, Lord. Like Isaiah, who, here am I, Lord, send me. Hey, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go to any church you send me to. I'm willing to go to any environment. 
Jesus, money's not an option. There's no lack in the kingdom. You're going to take care of me. But wherever you want me to go, I'm in. And I pray, Father, you'd give us a voice. I pray there would be miracles and signs and wonders and the profound movement of your hand and the presence of your Holy Spirit that's undeniable and that you would just bring about wonders through our life of sacrifice. Father, it's our call that we're to bleed, suffer, and die for our community. I pray you'd help. Give us a love for our next door neighbor that you... How how can we say, Jesus, that we're in love with you and we love you when we we don't care about our community the way that you do? That we're not involved in our community the way that you are? I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help us, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said...